With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. at the James Altucher Show, and I have a very special guest today. But first, uh, welcome to my co-host, Aaron Brabham. Aaron, how's it going? Man, I'm doing great, James. It's uh, another beautiful, sunny day in Orlando, although it's a bit chilly, only high of 63 today. But uh, Don't make me jealous. It's <laughs> you, you know it's negative three degrees here in New York, so... Oh, is it? it I, just, didn't e- I didn't even know that, just James. rubbing I'm it sorry. in. I know, I know. All right, so James, look. You know, for all of your guests, I always know the name in the very least, if not I'm very familiar with with their work. But today, uh, I was unfamiliar with your guest's name, so I had to do a little research. But I want you to tell, you know, your listeners who the guest is and why you decided to have him on your show. Sure. First off, his name's Hugh Howey. He's the best-selling author of the Wool series is a science fiction series. And there's something very unique about this series in that uh, it was self-published. He had no publisher for it. He just basically uploaded his files to Amazon, uh, published the book. Uh, as he explains in the interview, well, you'll see, it was his ninth book that he had self-published. And the book just took off and became this massive bestseller. He's, so, he, he's made, I don't know, seven figures on these books. You know, he wrote all, an entire series and then another series after that. Uh, Ridley Scott bought the movie rights. And so two years ago or two and a half years ago, this guy was shelving books in a bookstore, making 10 bucks an hour. And then choosing himself by, you know, a lot of people want to be writers, but they get rejected by the publishing industry and they give up. He chose himself. He uploaded the files to Amazon. He published himself. And after the course of nine novels, a book finally hit the bestseller list and he he quit his job. He's made his own career. And many people have done this. He's not the only one. And we, we discussed this on the interview. So it's really a fascinating way to choose yourself. And it's a vehicle that's open to anyone. And I, I want to tell you one other thing. I just came back from Amazon uh, where I was visiting their self-publishing group. And those guys, all they think about is how they can help writers self-publish more books, make more money. They're very writer-oriented. And it's just an excellent vehicle for for choosing yourself. And Hugh Howey is a great example of it. Plus, by the way, he's an excellent writer. I mean, I highly recommend not only the Wall series, but but many of his books. Yeah, that's outstanding. You know, it's good to see that Amazon is still sticking to their roots, you know, because they originally started their company for book publishing. And, um, you know, of course, it's transformed with the Kindle and, you know, your choose yourself book was huge and you self-published it through some of their software. So it makes me happy to hear that they still have their roots. Well, James, let's not delay any further. Let's uh, jump right into the interview. Great, Aaron. Thanks. So, Hugh Howie, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, and, and Hugh, many, many of the listeners might not know exactly who you are, but I'll, I'll give a brief bio, and then I have some questions about your bio, which, which you can elaborate on. But basically, you're the best-selling author of Wool, and essentially you've written about, I think, about 24 novels that are on Amazon or, uh, were bought by Ridley Scott. Is that correct? 
Yeah, that's um, pr- the number of novels is probably inflated by the fact that some were serialized. But uh, yeah, maybe fifteen or so novels, and oh, that okay, and- only fifteen novels. Only 10 more than Thomas Pynchon has written. <laughs> well, I think Thomas would say that he aims for quality over quantity. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You're, I've read a good chunk of your novels. Uh, you know, if you've written 15, I've probably read at least like eight or nine of them. And I would say you have very high quality. But what's really interesting in your story, there's two things that are interesting that I want to get to. One is uh, how you got to be a best-selling novelist was a very unique path that most people have not taken. And and I think it's a path that could be actually followed by many people who listen to this podcast to some extent, not maybe to the highest extent, but to some extent. And then I think also you have a site, authorearnings.com, which discusses kind of the pros and cons of the particular approach you've taken. So I want to get I want to get right into that. But I want to start off with a little more background while you're, you know, while you're writing or basically before you started selling um, big quantities of, of fiction, what were you doing? What were you doing for a living? Yeah, I was paying my bills as a bookseller. Uh, when I wrote my first novel, I was out of work. I was trying to help launch a website and doing book reviews, and I was covering the, the book industry from the um, from the inside, doing uh, re- interviews with authors, going to book conferences, doing trying to review a book a day. And so, so you were using the World Wide Web. Yeah, I was using the World Wide Web. I was on the internet. And, <laughs> the internet, okay. It's, <clears throat> uh, it's a new technology. So, yeah. and and how how that work out for you? Uh, well, it it was working. It worked out great because it motivated me to write my own book. It didn't work out so well for the website because I got lost writing my own novels, and uh, I was doing ninety percent of the work on the website. So the website foundered after that. But. Uh, so, so it, were you, did it motivate you because were you thinking to yourself and I'm just maybe, you know, were you, were you thinking, gosh, these guys suck so bad. I can write a novel <laughs> better than them. No way. What I, what happened, I started going to these conferences and meeting Well, I was doing interviews. I was doing at least one interview a week with really top notch writers. And I was going to conferences and meeting them. And what was cool is learning how down to earth and normal these people were. And the fact that they all had day jobs and the only thing different with them and myself was they got up every morning and, and spent a couple hours writing. And I realized I was what, doing the same thing. What time the, would they wake up? Website. Oh, it, uh, it varies. Uh-huh. But most of them had to, to write before they went to work. A lot of them were university professors or they had uh, jobs in journalism. And so they devoted a couple hours here and there. Yeah, some of them, you know... What I modeled myself on were the uh, writers who were getting up at five o'clock in the morning to write before they went into their day job. Wow. And uh, so they weren't making a living from their writing. It was just sort of out of the pleasure of writing fiction and having it published and having a few readers that drove them to this. Yeah. And some of these were New York Times bestselling authors. I assumed they were millionaires. And um, that started dispelling to me the, uh, the, the fantastical um, image I had of what a, a writer's life was like. And that helped me. I don't know. I, I think um, not putting authors on pedestals has been crucial to me visualizing myself as an author. I don't have delusions of grandeur. And I thought writers were some kind of special magical beast. And it was really nice to get to know them and and for them to offer encouragement. And I realized I was writing a couple hours every day for the website and for my blog. So why not put that time into writing the fiction that I've always dreamed of writing? 
And and so did that disturb you a little bit, though, that they were New York Times bestsellers and they weren't making a living at it? They still had to, like, teach or be a journalist or whatever. Uh, did that strike you that maybe the system was broken a little bit? Because a New York Times bestseller is going to sell, like, what, thirty to 50,000 books in a couple weeks. That strikes me as a way to make a living. Yeah, some of them, you know, you don't have to sell a lot, quite that many, to hit the list. It's especially those who are nonfiction uh, New York Times bestsellers. It's pretty startling how you can creep onto the list with just a few thousand uh, hardback sales in the, the opening week by targeting um, certain bookstores that report their their sales. It's um, and being a New York Times bestselling author is something that follows you for life. So some of the authors that I met in my bookstore were New York Times bestselling authors, but they hadn't hit the list in several years. And so you're you're trying to live off of um, for some, it's maybe twenty five thousand or fifty thousand dollar advance, and after your agent and your taxes, you're looking at trying to live off of you know twenty five or thirty thousand dollars, even on that high end. And so even a, a New York Times bestseller, they're only going to get a twenty five thousand dollar advance on their next book, on average. Would you say? I don't know what the average would be, but I mean, I, I can only talk about the anecdotal um, numbers that people would share with me, and um, the six figure advance, you know kind of had its heyday for a while, but it's very few authors who get that much money up front. Uh, for, a, for a debuting author, the number that I see most often is around $5,000 uh, as a, an average. Of course, the ones you hear about are the six and seven figure um, offers. I think it's dangerous to model our expectations around the outliers. And I, I'm an outlier in the self-publishing world and they're outliers in the uh, traditional publishing world, but most people don't get deals like that. Well, so, okay, so you were doing this website and talking to lots of authors, and then you decided to devote your time more to your own fiction. This was like inspirational to you, talking to these authors. What happened What happened next in terms of making a living? Uh, well, not much. <laughs> I wrote my first book, and I planned on giving it away, and I gave it uh, to friends and family, and some. Uh, the feedback was uh, that I should try to get this published, and it was better than the last thing they had read from the bookstore. Uh, quite a few people told me that. So I started uh, doing some research to find out what it, what that was involved in getting a book published and learned about the query letter, which I found was more difficult to write than the novel itself. Um, uh, th that one page took as much time as uh, almost as much time as writing the 100,000 word novel. And, and this is the letter that you would send to publishers describing yeah, your book. Right. This is you going from being a fiction writer to a, a business pitch artist. So, uh, yeah, I, I found it very difficult to write like a one paragraph synopsis of either who I am or what the book was and why this agent should care about it. So, uh, but I did that for a, a few weeks, sent it to agents and to small presses that took unagented submissions. And I got two small presses interested. One made an offer that I was happy with. And, uh, I, I was shocked that someone was going to pay me money for for this manuscript, it was very little money, but it was, uh, I anticipated having to spend money to self-publish it. So um, to kind of cut to the where I am now, I, the it went well, but I saw that the what, tools they were using. What, I'm sorry, Hugh, but what was the title of that book? Uh, Molly Fied and the Parsona Rescue. Oh, okay, great. And then you uh, continued to write a series on that. Yeah, when I, I published the second book, I had an offer from the publisher. Uh, they sent me a contract for the second book, and I thought, you know, I, I think I can do everything that they're doing on my own and have more creative control and quicker time to market. And I would keep 
a larger share of the earnings. So this time I wasn't thinking about ebooks at all. I was producing ebooks, but they were an afterthought. And so, well, so, so what wasn't what wasn't the publisher doing that you felt you could do? They were doing a, they were doing a good job. It's just I'm I wanted to change small things throughout the process, and that felt annoying. To I felt like I was annoying them to have to email them and say, "Could we tweak the back jacket this way?" I I wanted to fire up InDesign and Photoshop and do some of the stuff myself, and it seemed to be quicker that way. And I was also doing a lot of research on how which print on demand. Um, company to use and how to do the ebook things that they weren't doing um, uh, yet and what their publishing model. And I saw that maybe these were uh, helpful avenues to explore. And then I was walking them through using lightning source to try to get Baker and Taylor and Barnes and Noble distribution. And I started thinking, man, I'm doing a lot of the publishing work on my own. Why not just take on a few extra things and like the editing and, uh, and hire that out and, and, strike out on my own, basically do what they're doing. So, so striking out on your own, of course, makes a big difference financially because instead of getting, I don't know what your royalty was, but instead of getting, let's say, a 15% royalty, you could get 80, 90% or Amazon has 70%. I don't know, you know how that financially affected you given the advances that you were getting from the small publisher, but I can't imagine they were giving huge advances either. No, they weren't. And I, yeah, you know, it wasn't all financial, but it definitely paid dividends. You know, I started um, within a year of writing. I was making uh, at least $100 a month, which to me, uh, I lived on a very small budget and uh, never dreamed that people were going to pay for my, my writing. So uh, having my cable bill paid by, by my hobby every month was pretty startling. And I think that was only because I was in control of it all. So, so, Hugh, you wrote the first novel, you did it with a small press, and then what got you from writing like one novel to ha- having this huge amount of novels and then making a living from it? Like, what were you doing? What changed? I, I think the biggest thing, I think this is the difference in the, uh, the two methods of public, publishing now. Um, I, have, I have friends who have published through traditional publishers who were given one or two books to hit it big. And if they didn't, if they didn't have a blockbuster, the, there were enough other up and comers, um, for publishers to choose from that someone else was given a chance. And, uh, I was able to kind of ignore that, um, uh, the, the challenge of continuously writing books and selling them to, uh, publishers and just concentrate on the writing itself. I know that sounds counterintuitive. You would think that a self-published author would spend more time doing other things, but, um, when I got busy was later in my career when I signed on with, with publishers. Um, when I was working at a bookstore, I just spent my time writing the stories that I enjoyed and getting them out there and then moving on to the next one. I didn't worry about how that book was selling. I didn't spend a lot of time uh, promoting it. I didn't work, uh, care what the rankings or sales were doing on that book. My idea was I, I love writing now. I'm going to spend 10 years writing. And later in life, I might have 20 or 30 novels that I can tell people that I wrote and, um, you know, set up a booth in a uh, arts and crafts show and or go to book conferences and set up a table. But, you know, I wasn't going to make it with one book. I was going to have to write uh, all the stories that were in my head and get them all available. And they weren't getting old. It wasn't like they were dying on the vine. They were brand new to everyone who had discovered them yet. So, so. You basically you were you were working in a bookstore, but you were you felt your best marketing for your books 
in some sense, was writing a new book. Absolutely. Yeah. For me, well, I think part of part of what motivated me was 20 years of wanting to be a writer and not being able to finish a novel or putting it off, procrastinating and feeling like this is something I would never get done. And when I finished that first novel and realized that I could do it, it was almost like summiting my first mountain. And I got so addicted to the high of being up there and feeling that sense of accomplishment that all I wanted to do was go climb another peak. I didn't want to go around the country showing people slides of my mountaineering exploits and try to be a, someone who spoke about mountaining. I wanted to do it again. So um, my, you know, my passion was, was writing and it, uh, you know, I, I say this kind of with a lot of snark, but unfortunately I didn't get 10 years of writing again before things took off. I was just um, uh, putting books out there. And, and I, I think within three, within two or three years, I had about 5,000 books sold, which is what I planned to do in my lifetime. If I was lucky, sell that many books. So you can see I had very low expectations this whole time. But then this one <laughs> short story I threw up there uh, took off and kind of gave me an opportunity to focus my efforts on this series. And the sales got to the point that I could quit my day job and really focus everything on, on my writing career. And this was Wool, right? Yeah, it, was, it started off as a short story. Well, it's interesting because I, I, you call it a short story, but it was about 70 pages, Wool 1. Yeah, I think uh, it's 12,000 words. So when it's formatted by itself, it's about 40 pages long. I, I guess it can, it's considered a novel that would be its technical term. And then so you wrote Wool 1 through 4, and then you did the Wool Omnibus, which is when I read it. It, it By that point, it had really taken off. I mean, you, your Wool 1 through 4 plus the Omnibus was like 1 through 5 on Amazon science fiction list. Yeah, and that was an unexpected uh, benefit of having written it in parts, but the exposure of the series was, um, you know, if you see one book in a bestseller list, it looks like every other title, it just blends in. But when all five uh, of the parts of wool were all sprinkled throughout the list and all kind of climbed together, I think they, they gave uh, the series a lot more visibility and they supported one another. And uh, but yeah, at one point it was pretty obnoxious. You would get on Amazon and you would see all five parts um, in the top 10. When I combined them into the omnibus, those individual parts uh, kind of died down and the, the standalone novel is what uh, went on to hit the New York Times list and do really well by itself. And at this point, were you still working in a bookstore? Yeah, it was uh, right up until I think my last day was right around when the omnibus was released because uh, even when I only had three or four parts out, I was making as much in a day as I made in a week at the bookstore. You know, I wasn't, I was working a 30 hour job for $10 an hour. And, um, and, and that, uh, you know, the reason that job really allowed me a lot of time to write and what time I wasn't writing, I was spending around books. I was, um, you know, do, I was doing a lot of like author events and dealing with, uh, reps from publishing houses and, um, yeah, it was uh, very useful, I think, just to have those years spent in a bookstore while I was writing. It taught me a lot about the industry. Bookstore jealous that they had like uh, this writer there or did they all have a <laughs> kind of novel in a desk drawer that they wanted to put out? No, my boss who sat right beside me, it was really just the two of us ran the bookstore and we had some student employees who filled in every now and then, but the two of us ran the bookstore and uh, he didn't really think of me as a real writer because I was writing genre fiction. And uh, he, he's still a really good friend of mine, but he, 
Um, I think he's baffled by it all because, you know, he really loves literary fiction and, and uh, that's what he likes to write. I like to read literary fiction as well. So we have a lot of the same tastes, but um, he, he did not like to shelve, you know, science fiction or young adult up on the front shelves. And I was always fighting to get those books better placement. So yeah, we, we had a, we had a fun relationship. And I think when the series started blowing up, he was pretty baffled by it all. And then, so, so, okay, the series started blowing up and you, you quit the job to do this full time. What did you do with this new time? Uh, were you writing more? I mean, or were you dealing more with the publishing side of the business? I, I would say I'm, I was writing about the same amount. The, um, my day job was replaced with a day job spent answering emails and, uh, doing a lot of traveling, um, dealing with demands from agents and, publishers and um, people who wanted me to come to conferences and um, yes, yeah, a lot of social media interaction. You know, my, uh, my thrill with having a readership has been um, ha- having something in common with all these strangers online. And so uh, my use of social media has basically been to make myself available to existing readers. I don't really use social media to try to win over new readers. I just don't think that works very well. So I became really uh, swamped with uh, emails and contacts on Facebook and through Twitter. And I would spend a couple hours a day just handling those sorts of um, those sorts of things. Well, wow, it's really the opposite of a lot of marketing efforts of writers where they do use those, you know, like a publisher will ask you, what's your social media platform like? Because they expect you to, um, you know, the average writer to uh, use the social media media platform to sell books, but you were using it more to build community among existing readers. And I think that worked very well for you. I think, you know, I think it works better because it's, it's disingenuous. I think for a a writer to tell strangers, you're going to love my book or my book is great. Or maybe that just takes some kind of self-confidence that I I don't have, but I I think it's more effective to um, have a great relationship with your existing readers and, those are the people who are going around telling other people you should check out this work. I mean, I, uh, I don't read books that are recommended to me from publishers and authors, people who have a financial stake in my decision. Um, because I, I want, you know, I don't know what their, um, I, I guess I know what their goal is. Their goal is to make money off me. And I understand that completely, but I would rather listen to my friends and family whose goal is to make me happy with a good book. And I think those are the, those are the people we listen to more. We, we trust, um, friends and family and, and word of mouth more than we trust either a paid critic or the people who have a financial stake in that product. Well, it's interesting because after I became a fan of your books, I also found books that you would either blurb or mention. So for instance, I really like uh, the Marcus Shakey book brilliance because on your recommendation, I never would have known about it. So that's, that's really true. Um, I wanted to get into kind of the t- technical details at this point. So essentially, um, you know, what was your writing schedule like at this point? And then just technically, how did you publish? Like what platforms you use and so on? How did you get your book out there? Books? Well, I'm more creative in the morning. I do my best writing uh, early when my kind of my dream state, I guess, is still lingering. Uh, I felt I find my vocabulary is a little more. Um, it's not that the correct word is always available. It's just that I, I use more creative uh, word um uh, sentence structures early in the morning. And a lot of times uh, I have to revise those things to make sense of it um, later in the process, which I, I do better in the afternoon. 
So, you know, everyone has to figure that out for themselves. No, there's no right answer for when to write. You just, the, the right answer is to find time to write. The, the people who are doing it wrong are the people who think they don't have time in the day to do it. Um, why do you think that, why do you think they think that? And then they watch four hours a night of TV. Like what, what things did you have to eliminate in your schedule to find the time to write? Because you already had a schedule, so you had to eliminate something in order to, in order to write. Yeah. For me, I, I stopped playing video games and I stopped watching TV and I was spending several hours a day, uh, doing those two things. Um, so I'm, I'm still able to get as much reading done as I, as I was before. And I just replaced some of my passive, uh, media consumption with my active media production. And I think we can all do that. It's just difficult to do. I mean, uh, writing is a lot like dieting and exercise. It's something that we all wish we could do more of. And we, we have a hard time finding the willpower to do any of it. So, yeah, there's really no answer to it other than you have to just buck up and, and stop thinking about it and dedicate yourself to it. And if you can't do that, you know, if you can't write every single day, your chances of making it as a writer are kind of are really difficult. I think people don't realize the impact of like, let's say you just write 500 words a day. Well, by the end of a year, that's 180,000 words. That's and two novels. Which, yeah, that's, you know, which, again, many um, traditionally published authors write like three or four great novels in their in their lives. Like if you're writing two novels a year or more, it's enormous. People people don't realize the impact of a little bit of a day, how much that how quickly that adds up to something significant. Yeah. And if you do that for five years, let's you know, your first two novels might not be great. And that's part of writing a lot of novels is you have to write a couple just to to learn what you um, to, just to get better. And so you do that for five years. Let's say that gets you uh, five novels that aren't so good, but it gets you five novels that are great. Um, that's enough to um, five years later to sit and try to market and uh, or at least if nothing else, be proud of. But I, I think anybody who dedicates five years to writing every single day has a good chance of making supplemental income off their work. Um, well, how just, many how many books did you have out before you quit your job? I believe Wool was my ninth title. Your ninth title. So nine novels or novelettes or whatever you want to call them uh, you had written and published before you quit your day job. Correct. Yeah. And I had planned on, you know, this was two and a half years in. I would planned on writing for 10 years before I even worried about what I was making up my writing. So in two and a half years, you wrote nine no novels. Let's see. It was seven novels, a novelette, and then Wool was my ninth, which was a novelette. And then I had some short stories that I'd also um, put on my website for free. And and just as an aside, I have to tell you, uh, The Plagiarist and uh, The Hurricane, I, I think that's the title. Those were two of my favorites as well. I enjoyed Wool, but I really liked some of your, uh, I don't know, you know, your, your standalone science fiction and The Hurricane was more young adult, but I really enjoyed those books as well. Yeah, I have a lot of people tell me that The Hurricane is my best work, and that was, I uh, believe, was my first or second NaNoWriMo book. That's National Novel Writing Month is something I recommend to anyone who wants to make a living as a writer because it teaches you the value of writing every day. If you miss a single day, like you, you use 500 words a day as your goal, if you miss a day, you have to write 1,000 words the next day in order to maintain your pace. If you miss that second day, now you're up to 1,500 words. And so you can really, the same is true of, of eating right and exercising. 
taking one day off just snowballs into taking a week or a month off. And that's, that's, um, you just can't do that. If you, if this is your goal and what you want to do with your life, you have to be consistent. And NaNoWriMo teaches that better than any other program uh, out there. And, and, you know, it's not just the word count. I find for myself, if I don't write every day, then my writing is not as strong the next day. Like I have to kind of stay at kind of this consistent, I don't know, it's almost like a muscle that you have to keep in shape or else you have to, you know, reduce how much you can weight lift because you won't be as strong anymore. Not only that, I, I think my best writing comes from when I'm writing a lot. Uh, the idea that it takes five years to write a novel, I the, the disjointed mess that I would write if I spent five years writing a novel, it would be it would be atrocious. I think when people say they spent five years writing a novel, it means they started it and then they procrastinated for five years and then they finished it. Um, right. My my best writing comes when I'm writing five thousand words in a day. Uh, that's when I stay in my book and in my character's um, mind, and the the words are flowing. Um, and I I don't think people should have a word count uh, because the danger of that is that let's say you aim for five hundred, usually five hundred words just primes my pump, and my next two thousand words are great. But if you set a hard goal for yourself, then when you hit that goal, you give your, yourself an excuse to. To, to say, okay, I'm done. I'm going to and walk away from it. Right. And That's I, a really good you point. Write as, you should write as much as you can in a day and set aside the number of hours and don't give yourself a, a word count goal. Just say, I'm going to write as much as I can for two hours. And if that's one perfect sentence that's going to resonate in your reader's minds for years, that's two hours well spent. If it's 10,000 words of action and adventure that people are going to stay up till three o'clock in the morning because they can't put the book down, that's two hours well spent. It's just, you know, use every out, every bit of free time that you have to further your novel along and uh, eventually you'll complete it. Do you, uh, do you heavily outline in advance or do you let it just flow? I, I do a lot of brainstorming to know my story uh, in advance, but I don't write it. I make, make notes, but I don't write a, a heavy outline. And then my, uh, I think the best method for me to get writing done is to daydream the the next day is like I'll, I'll do my writing this morning, uh, which I've already completed. And then I'll spend the rest of my day thinking about tomorrow's um, writing, the one scene that I need to write that day. It could be, you know, two characters meeting. It could be them traveling a little bit or a bar scene or whatever it is. I daydream that scene all day long. And so when I sit down to write tomorrow, I'll know that scene. I'll know some of the conversations they have. I'll know what needs to happen during that entire scene. And if I, I finish that scene in my head. I'll daydream a little further along, but I always have to know where my story ends. I don't like, I don't, you know, lost the TV show showed us what not to do when it comes to plotting. You have to know what your story is about and what that final scene is going to be like in order to have some destination to move toward. Uh, otherwise I think books just, when I'm reading, uh, I can tell when the author did not know what was going to happen next and that those books never resonate as much with me. That's really interesting you bring up Lost because the story every step of the way was so powerful and so intriguing and yet you could tell particularly in the in the last two or three episodes you could tell the um writers in the beginning really had no clue how this was going to end. Yeah, and that you can write some of your best stuff when you're writing by the seat of your pants because you're just surprising yourself all the time and you're just making stuff up and making sure something exciting is happening at every turn. But uh, it's easy to do that and to write your to write adventures for which there are no uh, adequate solutions to 
And then you get it to MacGuffins and Deus Ex Machina and all these ways of, you know, it's all a dream, just ways of tying things up that are, are less than satisfying. I would much rather have foreshadowed events that if you read, if you read my novels a second time, you can see these hints dropped in very early that kind of tell you exactly what the story is going to be about. And you just don't well, notice it the first time around. Although, so, so, so wool eventually ended up being, you know, wool shift and dust, like the whole uh, kind of silo saga. Did, did you, when you were writing wool, did you know how, you know, 12 novelettes later, how it was going to, you know, wrap up like in terms of sequel and prequels and all of that? No, when I wrote wool, that was the entire story. So I didn't, I didn't have anything else that I wanted to write in that world. The only reason I uh, went back and, I mean, if you've, if you've read the novel, you know that after that first story, there's really nothing left to write about this character. So you have to start a new story in the same world about new characters. And that's, um, that's what I did. I didn't really try to pick up, um, with existing characters. I used the second book to transition to a new character who took over for the rest of the story. And right. And I, I think, I think that's what made, um, in general, that it's like you built a world, populated it with, with characters, and every character really could have a story. Like you were shifting, you know, character stories uh, quite a bit throughout the whole series, and I and and that allows even the fan fiction to be po uh, popular. So you have a lot of fans who have now written books within your world, and you know, focusing on their own characters. Yeah, I mean, we have to if if we're able to invent one character, then uh, we we should have the freedom to move to other characters or to kill off characters and, and introduce other people in other parts of the world. It's just, uh, I think we get so attached to our characters and we're so mystified by their, our ability to create them, even as writers who, who know we can do this. It still seems magical when you do it, that I, I think we, we get a little too attached to our characters. And I think for world building, it's helpful to be able to take that ability um, to invent people and invent crowds of them and jump around and, and flesh out the world a little bit more. And that also gives you the freedom to kill off main characters, which heightens the tension. You know, I, I think we're getting spoiled in books and movies and TV shows where we know, yeah, a lot of dangerous stuff will happen, but nothing bad will happen to my main character. But once a show or a, uh, a book shows that they're willing to do that, to kill the, the protagonist, that creates a lot of tension for the rest of the series. So, so let me ask you this. So, so let's say a listener has a book they've written, doesn't matter how many pages, 30 pages or 500 pages, and now they want to publish, but they don't want to go through the whole publishing route and they want to move to self-publishing just like you did. Technically, what should they do? Like what's, what's kind of an outline of steps to get your book up and out there like in the next week or two? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what I, what I would recommend, and, and you should get a lot of uh, – other opinions because everyone has, you know, I, I have my uh, own experiences, but other people would have their anecdotal um, uh, evidence and their own biases. But I, I think there are three uh, formats to concentrate on. And I, and I prefer using Amazon services for all three because they're, they're tightly integrated. And I see Amazon as being the bookseller best and number one bookseller in the world. So it's where I want to focus all my efforts um, for the ebook. I focus on KDP, which is the Kindle Direct Publishing. Um, all three of these services, by the way, are completely free. You, uh, everyone who has an Amazon account already has a KDP account. You can use your same login and password for buying stuff on Amazon to log into KDP and upload your first book. 
um, my for print books, I use CreateSpace. There are other print-on-demand books that have better distribution into bookstores like Lightning Source, but CreateSpace is tightly integrated into Amazon. It shows up quicker. There are no fees for setting your book up. The um, uh, the copies you order for yourself are very inexpensive. Your proof copies are inexpensive. You can even do a digital proof online and not pay a penny to produce your print book. Um, and then ACX, which is the Audible format, is uh, also a company owned by Amazon. And then what that does is it populates your Amazon product page with three different formats, uh, makes it look a little more professional and gives the reader options and also shows the ebook as being a discounted price from the print book, which is very helpful. Um, and so, having uh, print books is crucial. You can take them to events and do signed copies and stuff like that. Yeah. So I'll, I'll just add, so I've self-published, I've traditionally published five books and I've self-published about five books and I use the exact same three, uh, uh, parts of Amazon. So create space, Kindle direct, Audible. I didn't always use do audio, but I found again populating that page makes the book look more professional. And actually, I found like I kind of write more self help or personal improvement. I found that a lot of I was getting a lot of sales through my Audible book that I did not expect. I was surprised. Are you doing your own readings? Yes, I'm doing my own readings, and they I do them completely unabridged. I can't really read off of a a page. I get I get a little bored, so I just kind of riff while I'm reading my book. Oh, that's cool. See, I, and I, I love your Facebook, uh, posts, your, your, your blog posts. I think they're really useful. So knowing that you're creating that sort of content for the audio format, uh, probably the first thing I look up after I, after we get off, uh, the air here. Um, do, do you do I, your own readings for audible? No, I've, I've done one only because they asked, it was an auto, an autobiographical piece that I did for the Kindle worlds program in Kurt Vonnegut's world. My wife and I, um, went up to New York and they put us in a booth and we did the audio for that. Um, we, uh, she did Montana wild hacks parts and I did my autobiographical parts. Uh, that's great. Uh, did you, uh, just out of curiosity, did you use John Marshall, John Marshall? Um, I may have, it was brilliant audio set it up and I think it may have been John Marshall's, uh, uh, near Times Square, just a little north and west of uh, Times Square. Yeah, that's what that's who I use as well. That's who um, I think Harry Potter used uh, their their facility as well, and Bill Clinton used their facility. Oh, so, I did. Uh, yeah, I, I remember seeing his uh, his work on the wall there when you walk in. Yeah. So so okay. So nine books in. Use Amazon for everything from beginning to end. You have a book done from beginning to end. How long is before it appears on Amazon using using all their tools? Uh, well, if you once you have the final the final manuscript, if you hit publish on the ebook, and it's usually up within twelve hours, sometimes less than that. With the uh, CreateSpace book, once you uh, finalize the the proof and hit OK, it's usually up within a day. Uh, audio takes longer. They do a quality assurance, uh, so if someone has to listen to the whole thing, I believe, before they make that live. It usually takes a couple of weeks once you submit the final files. Um, right. And so and so I want to stress how different this is from traditional publishing. Like when you finish a book with a traditional publisher, it could sometimes take up to a year before it's published. Yeah. And, and you're what you're paid on your advance is sometimes tied to the on publication date and it might be tied to different formats. So uh, let's say a third of it is on signing. A third is um, on hardback publication and the third of that might be on the paperback publication so it could be 
two years before you get the last third of your uh, advance, depending on how it was structured. Um, and like you said, then the agent takes a cut, then the government takes a cut. And meanwhile, Amazon, uh, they're about uh, T plus 60, right? So if you sell something in June, then by August, you get the check for it. Correct. Yeah. If it's And if it's at the end of June, it's just a little over a month before it, you know, uh, everything in June gets paid um, six days later. So, um, yeah, it's pretty – well, I think publishers are having to respond to that. I've already seen publishers doing sales portals where you can see – monthly um, sales data by format. Random House has added a, a new sales portal. And um, I think publishers are going to have to get on to monthly uh, royalty reports and, and direct deposits to compete. So we're going to see some excellent um, benefits trickle down to the rest of the publishing world because of what these digital uh, retailers are doing. And I will say, you know, I publish on KDP, but uh, and I, I like using KDP Select, which is a 90-day um exclusivity period but once that's over i also publish to kobo and the ibook store and nook because it's free to do it you might as well get as many formats out there as you can although let me just say with kdp select you don't get to use um ibooks or kobo or barnes and noble but people can uh lend your books out and amazon has a weird way of paying uh on they have like a pool and so you get your pro rata portion of the pool based on how many books uh, you've lent out. And that could actually be significant money if people are lending your books to their friends and stuff. So it could actually work out to be uh, better results than, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to sell anything here, but uh, it, it could be better results than iBooks or Kobo or whatever. Yeah, I, I can say that I, I lost money by going out of select and offering my book in other outlets when I was doing really well two years ago. Um, because th th there weren't enough sales in the other outlets and I was losing the lending uh, bonuses and the, um, the extra product placement from Kindle Select. But I had so many, you know, I was, I was making enough to make, a, to make a comfortable living. And at that point, I was um, getting emails from people who had other devices who um, didn't either know that their device also read Kindle books or they didn't know how to do that. And so I kind of succumbed to the reader pressure to have as many formats out there as possible. But you're right. It can be, you can, you can lose money by offering your book in more places paradoxically. Yeah. And, and, and it's interesting that people who like, for instance, have an iPad aren't always aware that there's a Kindle app for, for there's a Kindle app for every device essentially. But I think that's over time. People will realize that Kindle dominates the universe. So they'll just switch to that from their Nook or Kobo or whatever. Well, for, for me, it's like iTunes with my music. I, I don't want to have my library spread out everywhere. And uh, even on my PC, um, have it, purchasing my, my works through iTunes, which I find to be the best website for discovery of new songs and to sample and listen to songs. But because that's where I started buying my music you know, years ago, uh, it just makes sense to have it all in one place. I can log into any device and access my entire iTunes library. And the same is true for Amazon and their eBooks. Once you start buying books through Amazon, uh, it doesn't make sense to have them everywhere else. You know, you have all your, so you really get locked in to one device and one marketplace. And for me, it's kind of a no-brainer which one to choose. I mean, the Nook is, um, there's a lot of talk about being spun off from the physical store. I like what Kobo does. And I like their devices, but I don't know that it's as stable as what Amazon has. So. Well, I'm curious now, your, your uh, coworker from the bookstore, he kind of had this um, 
you, you sort of alluded to he was looking down on either genre fiction. And I find a lot of people look down on just self-publishing in general and not as much now as, let's say, five years ago and not as much then as 10 years earlier. But there's there's always been a slight stigma or it used to be bigger, but there's a stigma against self-publishing. And how have you encountered that? And, you know, now let's start moving into you also have this site, authorearnings.com, where you really dive down on the numbers of how much self-published authors make versus traditionally published authors. And also, you know, there's kind of the quality issue, like does traditional publishing really produce higher quality in general on average? And what's what's some of your discoveries on that? Like can self-publishers make a living and do self-publishers write better or worse books according to the readers? Well, I, well, there's a lot of uh, topics to cover all at once. I, I <laughs> Answer them all in five minutes. <laughs> um, so I, I think self-published authors um, are generating the same quality of content that people going the traditional route are, are producing. And I, I know that's probably controversial to say, but the difference is we see all self-published books. Uh, the, the books that are that choose to people that choose to go the traditional route. We don't see all those books. We only see the ones that publishers produce. That's, that's what their curation and their uh, gatekeeping powers. They, we only see the top 1% of books that go the traditional route Um, with self-publishing. I think we should really only look at the top 1% of self-published books. And that's uh, that ignores the, what would people would consider the slush pile. And there's some books that I've written that are part of the slush pile that are not my best works and that I wouldn't want to include in the, the top 1% of books. So I include myself in that, in that category. Um, and there are a lot of traditionally published authors who not all of their books, you know, they all have a couple of books in their drawer that no one will ever see. Um, so uh, when you look, when you compare the two top 1% uh, against each other, um, and anyone out there who takes writing seriously, and, and devotes time and energy into it and takes the craft seriously, they can, they can get themselves into the top 1%. You, you have a lot of people who aren't trying very hard that you're not really competing against. Um, when we compare those two um, you know, tips of the icebergs together, which is what we do when we look at the top 50,000 rated books on Amazon, for instance, what we see is that readers review the self-published works higher. Um, there are a lot of reasons why that might be. Um, one um, is uh, possibly that we're producing more of the kinds of works that readers want. Uh, there's a bias in the publishing industry to publish more literary works and the kinds of things that the people who work in publishing enjoy. Um, but that, that would be like um, promoting opera rather than promoting cinema. You know, I, just because you have high taste, that does not influence what the market wants. Uh, the market wants cinema, not opera. And uh, even though I try to write as lyrically as possible and as uh, high quality prose as possible, I'm writing the types of stories that I want to read where lots of exciting things happen. And um, that tends to be what self-publishing provides to readers, more genre fiction, um, more romance and action and adventure and science fiction and what used to be considered pulp. Um, and we, we can denigrate that if we want, but I mean, traditional publishing has made its living publishing biographies of people like Snooky and whatever they think will sell. Um, and for some reason, in the nonfiction categories with self-help and religious texts and other things, they uh, are willing to cater to reader demand. But in, in the genre works, it just does not seem like they are willing to output as many works a year as those readers will consume. 
Right. So so uh, in terms of money now, let's say what would you say is the kind of comparison between the top one percent of the of traditional versus self-publishing? Can you like as you mentioned, you're an outlier, but can one make a living from self-publishing in your opinion? Yes, you can. Um, there are several reasons why you can. One, now um, you, you have much higher royalty rates with self-publishing. You're talking 70 percent for digital versus uh, 12.5% off the list price. So if you're self-published, you make 70% of what the book sells for. If you're traditionally published, you're going to make around 12.5% of the list price. People will say that 70% of the market is still print, which I think is uh, not not accurate. But even if that is true, that 70% is not what the author is making. Um, the author might make you know 12% of the list price. The retailer and the publisher make more on the sale of the book than the author does. So you're not giving up much when you um, self-publish on the print side, but you're gaining a lot on the digital side. And what we saw when we compared the top 50,000 books on Amazon were the self-published books were earning more in that daily snapshot for for self-published authors than traditionally published authors were making. Is that per author or across the whole group? Well, that's it's an average earnings per author. So we, and then we also broke it down to how much authors were making in each bracket. And from the outliers, uh, which were dead even, the people making seven figures, um, all the way to the people making a few thousand dollars a year, where the self published authors vastly outnumbered the traditionally published authors. In every one of these categories, self published authors were doing better. Um, and uh, it also turns out that Amazon appears to be making more money from self-published authors than from traditionally published books. So, yeah, the, the results were pretty startling. And that must be why Amazon has so little friction between, uh, you know, as you mentioned, it's all, all of their services are free to the writer. Like it's a very writer friendly environment. It's it's massive because they uh, when we think we think that 70 percent royalty is outrageous, but it's really a really fair rate when you think about what it's not a it's not really a royalty it's a distribution agreement we're not, we're providing them a finished product that they only have to list and put on sale and handle the transaction side they're not doing editorial they're not handling cover art they're not doing print um, distribution and all that stuff that's what publishers do and so they pay the author a royalty what Amazon is paying you is similar to what a bookstore pays a publisher to carry a book and we. Uh, at my bookstore, we typically got a 40 to 45% discount off of a book's retail price, which means we paid 55 to 60% to the publisher, and we had to warehouse and staff and sell the, the physical book. So what Amazon's doing is they're taking a finished product and charging 30%, where we used to charge 40% uh, for a digital no. book versus a print book. So it's a very fair um, transaction, very sustainable and it's it's a it's a higher rate than they're paying their traditionally published books, where they might only make ten to twenty percent per per sale of a book. And I think it might be a lot less than that. Now, are you ever disturbed by the fact that self published authors don't make it into the bookstores? Because, for instance, at least for most authors, uh, most self published authors, Amazon doesn't offer the return policy that traditional publishers do. I think, I, well, they, you can make it into bookstores if your book does well enough. I mean, for the outliers, the bookstores will carry your print-on-demand books. Uh, I've seen this personally, and I know other authors who aren't near um, 
you know, my level of sales that are seeing their books show up in bookstores and they've had success getting their books in a Barnes and Noble. I've got a friend who's done several signings in his, in his area in Barnes and Noble. It's been very well supported by them. Um, I think this will change. I mean, we're, we're very early in this process, but I would not be surprised to see create space, do some sort of pooled marketing where they would uh, have sales reps and view their create space books as their own in-house books. And they would go to bookstores with a catalog and say, Hey, these are our top sellers. This is the book we're most excited about that just came out. These are the books we think you should carry and basically do what publishers are already doing and offer books returnable and just eat the cost. I don't think they'll actually return the books to readers or to, to writers. I don't think they'll ding their accounts. I, I'm not sure how they'll work that, but I, my guess is that they could be profitable and eat the returns the way publishers do. Well, again, I find uh, Amazon to be incredibly writer friendly. So when they have to make a decision that's either for the writer or against the writer, they usually make that decision for the writer, even if it um, hurts their immediate bottom line, because they're looking at this long term. They're, they're creating a long term ecosystem for, for all writers. So uh, I think that helps the writer. I've seen this over and over again with Amazon where and we, we read their clauses and we read what their lawyers wrote and everyone freaks out. But when you deal with the people at Amazon, they make common sense decisions and they ignore their, their contracts and they'll say, look, this is what makes sense. And they'll, every time they've had to make a decision like that, they've made it against their own best interests and for the writer. And I, I, I'm baffled by that because you know, I've also, also worked with traditional publishers and it doesn't work that way. It's also the only company that's ever called me to say, and this is before I had this level of success that I've had, but called and said like, Hey, what, what can we do better? You know, just as a random survey sort of thing. And I know a lot of authors that they've uh, called like that and they bring in to look at new products and systems and say, what, what can we do to improve this? And I think, well, Oh, oh sorry. I just want to, I just want to mention. So just two days ago, I was at Amazon because and with and I met every single division of of Kindle and CreateSpace and so on and that's I was astonished how humble they were and every group asking what can we do better to help you and it was it was really uh, great to see that in action. Yeah, well, it's what's amazing. Self published authors know a lot about marketing and a lot about um, their readership, and I think this is something that publishers, uh, the New York publishers, should really tap into. They should really contact their writers and say, hey. What are you noticing? What can we do better? They should really pull those resources. Um, it's it's an unbelievable tool at their disposal, and Amazon's taking advantage of that, and, and other publishers should as well. Um, they're already doing that in the marketing side. You know, they when you sign a contract with a publisher, there's this assumption that if you're with a big publisher, they're going to handle everything for you. But the first thing they'll ask, as you mentioned earlier, is how big is your social media platform? How many Twitter followers do you have? How are you going to sell your book? And I think that'll surprise a lot of aspiring writers when they get that first contract that their publisher is asking them what they're going to do to, to sell the book. And uh, but that's the reality. They have to leverage their the um, muscle of all of those authors in their stable. And um, they, they can do that as well for market research, as well as they do on the, uh, the actual sales and marketing side. So so why did you decide to do this authorearnings.com? Like, what was your what was your goal with that? And because uh, it was a lot of work, you've, I see you put a lot of work into analyzing the data. Yeah, it's been a lot of work and you know a lot of money hosting the site and and getting things um, put up and formatted. Um, my 
motivation has been the same for the last several years. You know, I've, I've been trying to, um, do what I can with my agent, with our negotiations with publishers to make changes in the way, uh, publishers deal with manuscripts and with authors. You know, I think we should have limited terms of license. I think royalty rates should be better for digital works. Um, there's no reason publishers should make a higher profit margin off an ebook that they make off a hardback. Um, right. and we've, we've seen changes in every other, um, entertainment and, and, uh, media format, uh, in Hollywood, when digital streaming became a revenue stream, the, the writers had to strike basically to get what was a fair payment for their work. And I don't think that'll happen in, in the publishing world without pressure from self-published authors. Um, because right now publishers just don't compete with one another. They compete on, um, the size of advance, which the, the differences there are small. They go to auction and they'll have, you know, a competition there, but their contracts are boilerplate and they, they resemble each other too much. And I, I think we need, uh, yeah. So the, um, the reason for that website, you know, an author contacted me with the first bit of data from Amazon that anyone had ever really seen in a very clever way of coming up with that data. And I saw this as being a uh, really hard proof of what I'd already seen anecdotally for years. If you're in the trenches, this matches everything that you're seeing from authors on both sides of this equation. Dissatisfaction from tra traditionally published authors and complete befuddlement from self-published authors who can't believe how much money they're making, whether it's several hundred dollars a month or hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. There are people that you've never heard of that are making six and seven figures a year and those stories are popping up everywhere. And it's, um, it's hard to, to rationalize until you see this data and you realize, oh, my God, self-published authors are out-earning traditionally published authors on Amazon. Well, and I think what's particularly important is what you mentioned earlier. It's not just that they're making it on one book. A lot of times, I mean, I know some authors who have written over 100 books. And, you know, all it takes is like $100 per month per book. And if you've written 100 books, you're making like a good living, you know, in the, in the United States. Yeah, it's incredible. Well, you know, that's one of the things that we were concerned about when we saw this, when we saw this, these earnings. And we were able to, we have the author names, so we we're able to, to see how many books they were earning across and what their total earnings were. And so one of the things that we looked for was, well, is the, the difference in earnings only because they're publishing more books? Well, that was only true of the authors earning seven figures. In every other bracket, self-published authors were earning more money on fewer titles than traditionally published authors. So You know, you know what's interesting also, and, and your numbers probably don't cover this, is many self-published authors are in charge of how their books get distributed as opposed to letting the publisher be in charge of how your books get distributed. So, so for instance, for me, I often will bulk buy uh, a print order and then sell through an email list. Uh, and so that doesn't get reflected at all in terms of how much I'm making because uh, I, I could put together bundles of my books. And I think there's a lot of creative ways that self-published authors can market and sell and distribute their books, which is also interesting. Yeah, and you can you can give books away if you want. I mean, I through CrateSpace, I can get copies of my books for like three or four dollars uh, each, which is cheaper than some other marketing materials that you might, you know, if you wanted to give away thumb drives or um, other doodads at a conference. Giving away the book itself is cheaper than a lot of those things. Uh, I know people who they get really fancy business cards that are about a dollar each. Well, I can print a novelette for a dollar and and hand that out. So, and it's, you know, it's hard to do that through a publisher. 
You, you know what I did with my last book? I um, had all 67,000 words printed onto a T-shirt. And uh, so you can actually read on the T-shirt every single word. It's readable. And I sometimes give that away. Was that through lithograph? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they, they approached me at, uh, at AWP and wanted to do that with one of my works. I thought that was brilliant. I couldn't believe you can print that much onto a T-shirt, but they showed me one. I was, I was dumbfounded. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to do when I was up at Amazon just uh, again two days ago was uh, allow them to let me put a T-shirt slot on the title page instead of along with the audible paperback hardcover <laughs> also T-shirt because the that's whole book's brilliant. there. Yeah, so, that's brilliant. So now I want to ask you also like oh, switching topics like Ridley Scott tells calls you and wants to buy the movie rights for Wall. What happened? How excited were you? When's the movie coming out? Well, I, I, first thing I did was change my pants and um, <laughs> told everybody I knew. Uh, yeah, I, my expectation and with everything to do with my writing has been so low that when the movie talks started, I just assumed no movie would ever come out because a lot of stuff gets optioned. Very few things get made. Um, but everything that's happened since then, uh, I just feel like they're trying to get my hopes up before they uh, dash them, you know, uh, on a rock somewhere. Um We've gone through the, you know, they've written a screenplay and we've had all these pre-production meetings and everyone seems to be really excited about it. The screenplay is brilliant. So I, I still tell myself it'll never happen, but. Did uh, you help write the screenplay? No, I met with the, the screenwriter. Uh, we, they, he's from London and they flew me and him to LA and we spent uh, a week together brainstorming and going over his notes, but I've agreed with his vision from the beginning. He, he knows what uh, the heart of the story is about, and he's captured that in the screenplay. And have you met with a lot with Ridley Scott, or is he no, kind of hands off until production? Yeah, I, th I, th I think he would just show up to uh, you know if, if the sh if the movie won awards, that's when he would uh, show up to collect all those and put them in his trophy case. Um, and he, uh, he's, uh, he, he's a busy guy, and he's got all. I mean, to be honest, like uh, the movies that I know that he's working on, there are a lot more that I'd rather him see as a fan make before wool. So I, I, it's one of the reasons I'll be surprised if this uh, gets made. Well, are any actors interested yet? Like to how far along are you in the process? We, we haven't done the casting yet, but I know actors who have read the book who have contacted me privately or in person and said uh, that they are, uh, especially female actresses who are dying to play uh, Juliet. Um, I was at a, a conference in Australia and some of the, um, the media stars there started uh, passing the book around and, and there was a lot of uh, infighting about who was going to get to be Juliet. So that was pretty cool. But uh, if we do casting, that would probably be the, the next step and it would be sometime this year. Wow. And if let's say, I know you keep your expectations low, but let's say we were to have high expectations. When do you think a movie could come out? My guess would be next summer. Uh, if they, um, not this upcoming summer, but summer of 2015, they would probably, uh, if they cast it this year, they would probably be filming in the fall and um, wrapping up and doing post-production in the spring and releasing in the summer of 2015. But that's like absolute best case scenario. And again, that's not, that's not my expectation at all. So Hugh, two, three years ago, you were like a clerk in a bookstore shelving books. Now we're talking movie next year. You've got 
I don't know, 15, 20 books out. You uh, are continue, you know, continuing to write, obviously. Like what this this like just blows the mind. Like how has your life changed? Like, did you buy a new house? Did you have a big party or do you just, <laughs> you know, what, what what's going on? Um, I haven't had a big party. Uh, I, I don't know. The, I, I don't have that big of a social network. My partying has been <laughs> online with uh, Facebook, but my, my wife and I will have celebratory um, glasses of wine every now and then. Um, we, we had to buy a new house when we moved from North Carolina to Florida. My wife took a new job and we upgraded. We, uh, we live in a 750 square foot house in North Carolina and uh, we upgraded to a 900 square foot house here in Florida. Wow, a twenty percent improvement. <laughs> yeah, and you know it's um, so instead of bedrooms that are like ten feet by ten feet, they're now like twelve feet by twelve feet, and we're really confused what to do with all the extra space. It's pretty it's been pretty amazing, but you know financially, it's it's a weird situation where I don't have to work for the rest of my life. You know, I can write I can write duds and flops for the rest of my life, but I don't think about it that way. You know, I I'm living the same lifestyle and. Um, you know, still eat the same cereal every morning and wear the same T-shirts and shorts and just concentrate on the writing and, and enjoying life, which was my philosophy beforehand. Well, it's really interesting because a lot of people always ask the wrong question, which is, how can I make a lot of money? But what they don't realize is that money is a side effect. Like if you're doing something really well, then A, you'll tend to love what you're doing as opposed to the other way around. Like if, if you know, some people, um, you know, people always say, Find what you love and then do that. But I find if you do something really well, like writing, say, you'll, you'll love it automatically. And then money is just a side effect of that. And you don't really have to change your lifestyle because you love what you're doing all of a sudden and you love your, your, what you're, what's happening during the day. You don't write on a, on a, on a, you know, private jet or anything. You write in your home. Yeah. I, th- I think if people go into writing and we see this with the, the people claim that self publishing is a gold rush. Well, you know, there's, there are a lot of elements of traditional publishing that have the, the same mentality. Um, you know, there's a, a big catastrophe or some big news event and everyone um, jumps on writing and pitching that book immediately. And so I, I think any comparison you can make um, with or any, anything you can say about one of, of these routes of publishing, you can say about the other. Uh, what I will say is if you go into this to make money, I just don't know how you would ever be happy because your chances of making a lot of money are, are very slim. Yes, they're, they're better as a self-published author, but that's not saying a whole lot because the people who choose to traditionally publish, which means they choose to submit to agents, that doesn't mean they get their book on an end cap in a bookstore. They might not even get a publishing deal. You don't get to choose that. You just get to choose which route you're going to go. And that might mean rejection letters from agents for the rest of your life. That could be the route that you chose. Um, so yes, you can make, you have a better chance of making money self-published but that's only because your chances of making money traditionally published are so woefully slim. Um, why let money be your guide if your if your chances either route or that that bad? If you this is where self publishing really wins, not on the monetary side, but the satisfaction of of writing a story that you believe in and making it available to the public and getting just one reader to pick that book up and enjoy it. That's almost a guaranteed. Uh, outcome if you dedicate yourself to self-publishing. By the time you write five or six completed works, you will have found one reader and made them happy. And if you stick to that as your goal, um, I, there's no way you can lose. It's just, uh, it's such a liberating feeling to know that you're 
success and all of your efforts and all of you, the ownership of your art, it's all in your hands. And well, and, and we both know writers who like take Teresa Reagan as an example. She had been trying to traditionally publish for a decade or more until finally she went the self-publishing route. And now just through self-publishing, she's a massive bestseller in both the romance and thriller categories. Yeah, and I, I guarantee, I mean, she's made a, a lot of money doing something that she loved that she could easily have given up on the other way. That's that's another huge advantage is self-publishing inspires people to continue writing. I know I've got really good friends who have been who are published with big five publishers who have given up on writing because of how their careers have been handled. They had something that they loved doing and the business side of it took all the passion out of it for them. And with self-publishing, I mean, again, it's a paradox because you think you'd be busier. But if it takes me two months to write a novel, it takes me two days to publish it. That uh, So when you think of like all the stuff you have to learn and all the headaches of self-publishing, you can do it in a weekend. You can get your ebook, your print book, and your audio book set up and formatted uh, and, and ready to go in a weekend. And that's not so- a lot of investment in time. No, it's 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 been really amazing for me as well. I have to say it's it's changed my life. And this is after having traditionally published, you know, I published with Harper Collins, with Penguin, with Wiley, uh, five different books, and self publishing has been amazing for me. But um, what are you working on now? Like, do you work on like a bunch of books at the same time, or do you focus on one at a time? Like, what's your next bunch of projects? I try to focus on one at a time. Right now, I'm I'm moving several projects forward to. Uh, see which one's going to grab my attention. I just published um, really three works this year already. Uh, a, that short story in the Kurt Vonnegut world for the Kindle Worlds program, a novel called Sand, which has been a bestseller, and then an anthology with John Joseph Adams called The End is Nigh, with, where I edited 22 short stories and contributed one of those and uh, helped produce and self-publish the books. We just got that out a couple weeks ago. So uh, the last couple of weeks... I've spent in the fifth Molly book uh, playing around and also starting a couple of new novels and just see which one captures my attention. Probably the next week or two, I'll pick one and run forward with that for a couple of months until that one's finished. Well, that's great. So, Hugh, thank you so much for, for coming on this show. I really think you're, you're, you're living the dream, and, it's been, and congratulations for all your success. And also, I think you're really um, helping move forward, you know, getting rid of the traditional stigma that's been associated with with self-publishing and showing people that this is a viable route to either express yourself creatively or to even make a living and uh you've been you've been doing that really well so uh thanks again for for spending the time and coming on this show thanks james it's an honor and i'll I'll do it anytime man excellent thanks you well james that was an excellent interview what's the one big takeaway that you had You know, it's really interesting to me that here's a guy who followed his dreams, he kept his expectations low, and then he blew away those expectations. Now, not everyone is going to write a best-selling novel, and note, it took him nine novels to write a best-selling novel, but I guarantee you, for just about everyone, there is something you can do where if you're persistent and you keep you know, your positive expectations high, you know, you keep, you keep your optimism high, you're going to find success. You're going to be able to choose yourself and find freedom. Everyone wants freedom of choice in their lives. Hugh found it through writing. Other people find it through building apps. Other people find it through 
owning a franchise or investing or whatever, but there's always a way. And if you, if you do what you do well, you'll end up doing what you love. And money is the side effect of that. And freedom is the side effect of that. So I encourage everybody to, to choose this route, really. Yeah, that's great, James. It's a theme that you have over and over, and it's what a lot of your guests uh, have pretty much done with their lives. You know, they've all kind of bottomed out at some point, chose themselves, and it pays off, but it is uh, scary. You know, one of my favorite sayings I ever heard was, um, when one door closes, another one opens, but sometimes it's hell in the hallway, and uh, it's good to go to the new door. Yeah, exactly. That's a good analogy, and it's one to think of. Even when you're being persistent in the same area, like just because some agent rejected your book, uh, you know, I tried to write fiction 20 years ago and I got I wrote four or five novels. I got rejected everywhere. Uh, and then I went started publishing nonfiction. And then my most recent book, Choose Yourself, I totally self-published. I used the exact same techniques that and the exact same companies that Hugh talks about in the interview. And my book, uh, the day it was published, hit number one for all nonfiction on Amazon over every other book in the world. So it's possible and it is the dream. So and everybody's got a dream and I encourage everybody to pursue it. That's awesome. And uh, one more note for the listeners out there. You know, we talked about doing the Ask Altature segment where it's a daily podcast, about 10 minutes long. We've recorded a series of those. We're just uh, doing the technological ends of it right now, but we should have those up in the next couple of days or so. And uh, it's the chance for all the listeners out there to ask you a question or go to your uh, Twitter, which you do a Q&A every Thursday. What is it, between 3.30 and 4.30? I forget the yes. exact time. Yes. Between 3.30 and 4.30. And your uh, Twitter handle is at James Altucher. Is that right? Yeah, and people ask me anything. You could ask me about relationships, divorce, hate, anger, anxiety, fear, startups. People ask me anything. I answer on the spot. But now, Aaron, now that we're doing this Ask Altucher, we'll be able to also take kind of the, the best and most interesting questions and expand on them further. That's outstanding. And uh, also, you can also email James at you go to the email address, James at Stansberry dot com. That's James at Stansberry dot com. I hand select these. I'll ask you one a day. We started it. We'll get them up and running real soon. So please, we encourage everybody to do that. And uh, James, another phenomenal podcast. I know your guest lineup that you have coming up. It's spectacular. I'm really looking forward to these, and I hope uh, everybody else just hangs in there and keeps listening. Honestly, I can't believe some of these people said yes to coming on the podcast, some of the guests that we have coming up. But it's really uh, – I'm excited. I'm excited to talk to some of them since some of the interviews haven't happened yet. Yeah, absolutely. All right, James. Well, another uh, spectacular show, and uh, we'll talk to the listeners soon. Thanks, Aaron. Stansberry Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized financial advice for any individual specific situation. Each individual's financial situation is unique and Stansberry Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized advice. Stansberry Radio is not licensed to render personalized advice and should be considered simply the public opinions of Stansberry Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific financial securities are not intended to address any listener's particular financial situation. 